0: If you're not from the majority group, you don't see anyone else that looks like you, you think, well I'm the odd one out, I must be wrong. But the truth is you know that as we've, we've talked about you know the diversity is what like drives the innovation in yeah. science and so when you you know you stick it out, um, you stick to your you know you know try to, to bring people along I guess uh, to, to your perspectives and in the long run it's very satisfying.
1: The human brain is the most complex structure in the known universe, and we are in the middle of a scientific revolution to understand its inner workings. Join us for a conversation with world-renowned neuroscientists as they visit Rochester. I am Dr. John Fox, director of the Del Monte Institute for Neuroscience at the University of Rochester, and you are listening to Neuroscience Perspectives. Hello, and welcome to Neuroscience Perspectives. I'm John Fox, I'm the director of the Del Monte Institute for Neuroscience at the University of Rochester, and I'm delighted to have with me here today Professor Lucina Uden from the University of California in Los Angeles. Lucina is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, uh, and she works with uh, functional neuroimaging to uh, investigate brain connectivity and uh, circuit uh, activity in children uh, and adolescents developing the developing brain uh, with, a, with a concentration also on, on children with atypical development and intellectual disabilities. Lucina, it's really wonderful to have you here. And uh, you know, let's, let's dive right in. Uh, before we really get stuck into the science, uh, I always like to begin by you know, just finding out a little bit about you and your trajectory. I know you grew up in, in California, uh, but you were born elsewhere. And do you wanna tell us a little bit about your trajectory?
0: Well, I guess how far back do you wanna go? <laughs> so I was actually born in, in Bangladesh. Uh, my parents immigrated to the United States when I was an infant. Um, and so it's a pretty typical immigrant story um, from South Asia, but I did grow up in Southern California um, and I was fortunate enough to be able to come back to, uh, to home a couple of years ago when I joined the psychiatry department at UCLA.
1: Terrific, and what took you into science? Was that a a passion in school as a youngster, or is it a later developing thing?
0: You know, the opposite, in fact. I was not interested in science. I was interested in literature and language and arts. Uh, My father has a PhD in comparative literature, so no science in our home. (laughs) It was not something I thought I would be doing. I did, however, uh, become practically-minded towards the college years and uh, sort of entered a pre-med major, uh, studied neuroscience. Mainly because at that age you don't know what to do. You look at a list of a hundred majors and you pick one. Um, and you know, being a child of immigrants, it seemed like yes, I should be a doctor. It wasn't a whole lot of thought process that went into it. But towards the end of my undergraduate years studying neuroscience, I really began to just you know become fascinated with the brain. Of course, you know, it, what's not to like, right? Yeah, it's yeah. one of the most interesting organs. But realized, of course, that I was not. Uh, well-suited to go to medical school and actually had no interest in following that particular career path. Um, lucky for me, I came to learn that there's other ways you can uh, engage in science, and one of them is is to become a neuroscientist. So that's uh, what I ended up doing. Right.
1: Well, we won't go. We won't get into the idea that the science is practical and everything else is impractical, right? <laughs> right. So, that's not what I meant. Uh, yeah. and actually, you know, it's just myself. I studied it. When I started my studies, it was in uh, literature and ah. history, and I came to science quite late in, <laughs> yeah. in life myself, <laughs> yeah. um, and I think it makes for an interesting trajectory. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so your parents, your dad was a was an academic, so that, that must have been an influence on sort of choosing the academic life.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, just even realizing that one can get a PhD and specialize on a topic and study it for their, the rest of their lives, I think um, it's not always uh, uh, understood that that's a career path. Um, so. I think especially for people coming from other countries, it's, it's uh, you know, they kind of want stability, economic stability, yeah, that's of course, sort of yeah. one path to that is to go into a field like science, engineering, or, or uh, medicine. Um, so I think it's, it's uh, really, I think I appreciate having that kind of background to sort of, um, you know, draw from in terms of thinking about when I mentor students from uh, all over the world, kind of having an understanding of where they might be coming from might be different than uh, growing up um, you know, in a middle-class American family, for example.
1: Well, you know, like, I, I, this, I hadn't intended to ask you this, but let, let's stay with this this interface between, you know, coming from the humanities into science. <laughs> sure. Is, do, you, do you bring that into your science, or did you leave it behind you? Oh,
0: I bring it, I mean, I'm a huge reader. Um, I love writing and literature to this day. I read at least one novel a month, um, really into fiction and sci-fi. But I, I think what people don't realize is that a career in science requires so much writing and communication, and that's something you, you develop really very much so in the humanities, um, you, know, you, you learn to write, you learn to communicate, you learn to convey complex ideas. Uh, to a wide audience and to really engage and bring people in. Why are we doing this? What what makes it important? What's the significance? Uh, how does it help us understand the human condition? These are what the humanities train you for. So I think, uh, you know, I never meant to say, oh, that wasn't practical. I think in fact, all of that training, you know, um, helped yeah. me become, uh, you know, the, the scientist. I, 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 I completely I agree. I mean, it,
1: you could have the greatest <laughs> finding idea in the world, but if you can't turn it into words that you can communicate to people with, yeah. it may as well not exist. Exactly. I, I a PhD
0: advisor actually said that if you you know did a study and didn't publish it, it's as if you didn't do it because exactly. no one knows what you did.
1: <laughs> Very good. That, yeah. That's terrific. I really, that, mm-hmm. that, I think that's a, a great, a great uh, advice actually to graduate students that don't neglect that side mm-hmm. of life. I actually live by a maxim myself, which is if I don't have place in my life. For a book that's not related to the job, <laughs> my my life is out of balance. That's so, true. Well, there's two things that we I want to talk about. One one obviously I want to get into the functional imaging sure. and how you approach your science, um, and the other piece uh, you know that our audience should know about is you know you you have a very specific devotion to diversity equity and inclusion in in the sciences and you've put a big chunk of your career into that and won awards for <laughs> for in that space. So we'll get to talk about that I think <laughs> shortly but let, let's do the science piece first. Yep. Um you use big magnets, <laughs> Yes. right? I, do you want to tell us a little bit about that and what yeah. it means and how you approach it?
0: Those of us who want to study the human brain, unfortunately, we have few options because we, we can't do a lot of that uh, really nice invasive work that our colleagues do and who work on animal models, so we can't do quite as much manipulation. We can't do quite as much of uh, getting into um, you know, cellular mechanisms because we're confined by what you can do to human subjects. So, um, so we've, I've been working in uh, magnetic resonance imaging um, since I was a, a PhD student, so I guess 20 years now. And we can, you know, of course, non-invasively look at the brain when people are doing certain things. We can uh, look at their brain when they're doing nothing at all, which is a, something that's become very interesting in the last few years. So yeah, I've been um, trying to sort of push the limits of what we can do with this um, uh, magnetic resonance imaging technology, because we're learning more and more about uh, sort of, it's not just, you know, input comes into the brain and the brain does something and produces some output, but it turns out there's a lot of spontaneous activity in the brain, and we're only now just beginning to understand how that constrains function, constrains behavior, how it shapes kind of what we do. Uh, I think this is just a fascinating um, area that my lab has been thinking a lot about this intrinsic activity spontaneous activity what does it mean you know what's it what's it there for and how can we use it to better understand brain function
1: so this idea that there's there are brain states that the networks are active in a certain way when things are good and that you can even just image the brain at rest and yeah. understand when things are awry or off kilter or That's the right. networks aren't working well yeah. and, and and give us some like give us a note a nugget of an, in, an insight uh, that we've gained from
0: this. Yeah, I mean, I think people were surprised to find how coherent this activity is, and how um, you can find it in individuals over time. Like, for example, in your brain and my brain, we could find similar-looking networks, even in this what we call resting state, when we're not in, even if we're just lying there, not doing anything at all, we would still be showing spontaneous, coherent, low-frequency activity in what you might call a motor network or a language network or a visual network. Those are regions of the brain that would be cooperating if we were doing a motor task or a visual task or a language task. But it turns out they're just kind of spontaneously going, uh, they're just going in loops <laughs> yeah. all the time. And you can find them in individuals. You can find that they change over the lifespan. You can find some um, kind of signature alterations in some developmental conditions. It's just a, a whole new way of thinking about um, brain function that I think has really um, produced a lot of insights.
1: And I suppose a, a magic power of this particular technique then is that you don't have, you know, if you have children and, and you're very concentrated on development yeah. who can't answer a question or can't perform right. a complex task, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't put a huge demand on that. You can actually yeah. look at function without having people doing somersaults for us. Yeah. That's
0: right, yeah. You can just have someone say, lay still for five minutes, and if you can get them to do that, you can actually collect this data, which tells you so much information about brain organization.
1: And gives it a clinical tractability Mm -hmm. component, too. That's That's right. That's really interesting. I happen to know, of course, that you are very involved with uh, one of the, I think, maybe the biggest (laughs) study that NIH has ever, the National Institute of Health, has ever really undertaken, the ABCD study, Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study, which is a mouthful. Yeah. tell us a little bit about (laughs) that and, and what your hopes and aspirations are for it?
0: Yeah, and I I assume you're also very involved. So, uh, so, But um, yeah, this study that NIH has been funding now um, for close to 10 years has started with nine and 10 year olds and a huge group of them, over 10,000 nine and 10 year olds um, who came in uh, and the data were collected across 21 sites all over the United States. So the idea was to get people from all over the place and just follow them up yearly with uh, brain imaging measures and cognitive measures and behavioral measures uh, with the ultimate goal of trying to predict um, susceptibility, risk, and resilience to substance abuse and mental health uh, disorders across this adolescent um, period. So it's just enormous, as you can imagine, uh, both as a data collection effort and as a data dissemination effort and as a data analysis effort. So for years now, um, NIH has been uh, sort of releasing the data for. To the public for researchers to use to answer and all that's of these key, questions, right? and that yeah, is now, key. This is
1: a very important <laughs> yeah. piece, mm-hmm. right? This is the model has changed here. Uh, yeah. As scientists, we collected data in our labs. We kept it. We huddled around it. We kept it. For <laughs> hoarded ourselves, it. Hoarded it. <laughs> yeah. It was precious commodity. Right. But this is a change in the model. Do you want to talk about open science and what, oh, sure. and what our hopes yeah. for that are?
0: I mean, open science is huge. The idea that the the data that scientists collect should be made available for other scientists to use and and answer, you know. Uh, whatever questions that that they want to answer. Um, This is huge. I actually started my lab about 10 years ago when this really took off. Um, It used to be sort of unheard of that people would say, hey, I spent the last five years and $5 million collecting this data. Here, you have it. But now it's actually mandated by the National Institute of Health to say, okay, you've spent all this effort. Great. Now let's see what others can do with it as well." and it brings um, the kind of collaboration that, that um, you know, really benefits all of us because then you get computer scientists, electrical engineers, physicists sometimes, people coming with new approaches. You get uh, people in, in other fields, um, you know, uh, just being able to, to work collaboratively with the people who have collected the data. And it just uh, gets extra complicated and, and extra uh, nuanced as a result. But I think this is the, this is the future of science. Yeah.
1: And I, I suppose there's two important distinctions. One is you, you mentioned $5 million, which is not, not atypical.
0: Yeah.
1: That $5 million comes from the American taxpayer. That's right. <laughs> and they want value for money, right? Mm-hmm. So, this is, so having those, that, those data looked at by one mind is nothing like having it looked by looked at by all the brilliant minds that could potentially leverage it.
0: That's right.
1: But another piece, and then this goes to, to what, what I want to talk to you about next, which is yeah. the diversity and inclusion, is sure. there are many people uh, who don't live at a major academic center like yeah. the University of California in Los Angeles <laughs> sure. or the University of Rochester, where we have phenomenal resources, Mm -hmm. but there are great scientists and great minds out there Mm -hmm. at smaller places that don't have those resources, that can't get data like these. So this provides that opportunity for them. Exactly right.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's what it did for me, because I started my lab at the University of Miami, where they were just starting a neuroimaging center at the time. So while I was waiting for things to pick up, you know, getting our scanner uh, going, everybody's writing grants, during that time I was able to analyze a lot of data sets that have been made available through these open science efforts. Uh, One of them was called the Autism Brain Imaging Data Exchange, ABIDE. And so that's another one where researchers uh, uh, across the world really were, were putting their data together in one place and you could download it, you could use it to to look at uh, brain connectivity and its development in autism, which is what I did for many years in the beginning, while waiting for our own grants to start, while waiting and doing our own data collection. So it really has just changed, I think, the way people do science now. You just see more and more of these large data, and not to mention the statistical power, the increase you get with looking at hundreds of subjects instead of looking at tens of subjects. So it's just been a win-win.
1: It has. Well, that, and it's a nice segue into this issue of diversity because another key component of the ABCD study, right, mm-hmm. uh, in the old days, an investigator would do a functional imaging study, at best they'd have 20 or 30 people in there, and they probably all came from the local school, right, right. or, the, or, or the, you know, some organization, somebody's book club, <laughs> but, but, today, but ABCD, mm-hmm. Changes that, right? Do you want to speak to that?
0: Well, it tries very hard to match the um, the racial, ethnic um, diversity that we have in the United States. So it tries very hard to sort of get the percentages right, and that brings with it extra challenges because you know trying to get into uh, you know get participants who maybe don't have as many resources to say, hey, I'm going to give you five hours out of my day to do a study. It's a different set of challenges than saying getting a college student to, to, to come in to yeah. do a study. So um, what, uh, So this project is funny because I, I'm a newcomer to ABCD myself, so I, I joined UCLA two years ago and um, sort of was immediately sucked into this world of, of, uh, of this big grant. And then just a year ago, I was appointed as the Associate Director for Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusivity for all of ABCD, which means now I'm talking with everybody, all the 21 sites, looking at what their local recruitment efforts are, what are the difficulties they're having with retention, especially from participants in minoritized populations. Uh, all of, uh, lots of issues um, related to justice, equity, diversity, and inclusivity in all of the study have now um, sort of fallen under uh, my umbrella. And um, now I have a team of individuals who I work with um, you know, to sort of spread the JEDI efforts all throughout uh, the consortium. So that has been Quite a interesting
1: challenge. It's a tour, a tour de force and a, and a real challenge because, yeah. and I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, in, having been early enough into in the ABCD, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people started out with the best intentions. Of course, <laughs> but of course, I don't think we had a real appreciation for the true barriers that oh, are yeah. out there mm-hmm. for people who come from hard backgrounds right. who have don't have the economic means for them to stay involved in the right. in the study, the mobility in those communities. Mm-hmm the the lack of a bus fare the, yeah. this mm-hmm. comes down to such basic simple things right. that that militate against participation yeah. and, and and how intentional we need to be as a community
0: yeah yeah it's it's um, for me it's been a whirlwind tour of just learning uh, while trying to do justice to this this role which I think was um, very um, forward thinking for the directors to say hey we actually need an entire person devoted to thinking about these issues an entire team that's right. now funded to do that so um, you know, we've talked a lot throughout our uh, symposium today about how um, the the funding, you know bodies like National Institute of Health can help us think this way, for, to be more inclusive in our science. And we just had wonderful presentations already about this. But part of it is just as simple as money. Have you provided?, um, you know, uh, means for transportation or meals during this, you know, things that make it easier for people right, to protect, right. child care even. If they have other children who need, you know, care and they want to bring in their adolescent to the study, maybe we have to provide means for that as well. So, I mean, just thinking these issues through um, is a big step. Right,
1: and take it, taking off hours of a work day right. for, you know, when you're, yeah professional who can get time off but if you're a ship worker yeah. you know it's this it's hard <laughs> you know it's uh, we we're talking about best intentions but right. at the end of the day you have to actually deploy yeah. resources right. and human power and yes. knowledge and i think you know you're at the pointy end of the stick on this and oh. i think it, uh, as an abcd investigator we, we, we <laughs> really appreciate what you oh, uh, the well. team are doing it's, no
0: it's a, it's a tall order and that's why we really need buy-in from everybody and that's part of what it is is that everyone at abcd and studies like this we've all realized uh, we don't live in a uh, academic ivory tower bubble or maybe we do but we if we want to really make uh, the kind of impact that we are hoping to make we just have to take all of these factors into consideration
1: and i mean just coming back to where we started does, yeah. does your bangladeshi background your immigrant <laughs> background does it, do you feel like that's that's helped you uh, in this role? I
0: mean, for sure. I think part of what we're combating now is also this idea of medical mistrust or just mistrust in science. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why some communities would not want to come in and participate in a research study. And it, it helps me to understand some of that. I can, I can tell you, like, as an immigrant, we only became citizens you know, through the naturalization process. And you may not want to, um, you know, to reveal to an institution what your immigration status is in the United States, contentious issues. Uh, there's a lot of things going on right now with uh, sexual and gender minorities in some states in the United States, where it's becoming more and more dangerous for those individuals to exist. And so, um, in our study, we might ask these questions that some people are even afraid to answer. So, you know, just being sensitive to, you know, this like with the things we're asking, we're we're doing this because we want to help these communities, but at the same time, we have to build trust with the communities so that they know, hey, we're doing this for you, not, you know, uh, it's for some nefarious purpose.
1: Right, right, right. And -hmm. I always say, uh, there's a saying, right, that, you know, uh, the strength in science is in its diverse minds and bringing people from different backgrounds together. Mm -hmm. And I I personally believe that's one of the great achievements of the American science engine, is that it took minds and and, and brilliance from wherever it could get (laughs) it. And I I rue the day that that they would decide not to do that, because that is what's driven. Innovation in this country. Right. Now, you know, I I really appreciate that. I was and I I, I, I appreciate you wading into what is difficult political territory. Sure I mean is. it's not easy to talk about. Mm-hmm. I always like to close with this question. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, for youngsters up and coming, you know, you've you've travelled a certain path, mm-hmm. you know, from an immigrant family and the humanities <laughs> and so on. When you turn around and you talk to your graduate students yeah. or, or or even if you're out in the in the school system, mm-hmm. what what do you say to youngsters? What do you say about Do you have some nuggets, tips for life?
0: (laughs) For life? Oh, wow. Or or the academy. (laughs) It's interesting because um, I was not by any means a traditional success story. I think it took a long time for me to get off the ground. I mean, in terms of, you know, I was a postdoc for something like seven years, which may be more typical nowadays, uh, just a larger commentary on academia in general. But, you know, I didn't think that I would succeed in this career path. There was no indication I would for many, many years. I struggled. Um, I didn't get my first faculty position until, you know, about 10 years ago. Uh, it's a lot of investment that you put in, not sort of knowing what will come out the other end. But, um, you know, and and people will give you all kinds of advice, but it's kind of the survivorship bias. Like, this worked for me. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll work for anybody else. But what, one thing that I found that I... I couldn't uh, move away from was this kind of like I have I have a unique perspective and I'm just going to keep doing the thing that I think needs to be done whether it's looking at spontaneous brain activity when nobody else cared about that or you know whether it's yeah. you know looking at certain populations using you know certain approaches I have a unique perspective and I'm going to be here and I'm going to bring that perspective to academia whether they want it or not yeah. it turns out eventually they do want it because um, you know uh, sometimes. If you're not from the majority group, you don't see anyone else that looks like you. You think, well, I'm the odd one out. I must be wrong. But the truth is, you know that as we've we've talked about, you know, the diversity is what like drives the innovation in yeah. science. And so when you you know you stick it out, um, you stick to your you know you know try to to bring people along, I guess uh, to to your perspectives. And in the long run, it's very satisfying. Um, but it is a uphill battle and and the only thing that sort of keeps you going is the mentors and allies and friends and collaborators that you meet along the way who support you in that path so um so there's the both sort of don't lose your hope even though it sometimes looks bleak but also like rely on those friends and connections and collaborations because uh that's what makes it all um possible and worthwhile
1: that's fantastic you know <laughs> we hear this again and again when yeah. i ask this question mentors yeah the people that give you a leg up in yeah. life and what i hear is perseverance, single-mindedness, and hard work.
0: Well, the mentors, and it's true, you can't do it without mentors, colleagues, friends.
1: (laughs) Lucina, thank you very much for taking time out. It's really been a pleasure to chat with you and to introduce you to our our audience. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank
0: you so much.